Find your place in your Bible this morning, if you will, at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. The Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 10. We are continuing in this series entitled Simply Jesus. And today, we're looking at the story we looked at in the last message I delivered. But we're going to expand upon that as we consider the rest of this story that we didn't look at last week. Mark chapter 10, if you will, verse 17. Now, as he was going out on the road, that is Jesus going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, in these next few minutes, as we consider this important story from your life, and we consider talking about simply Jesus, simply you. Lord, I I pray that you'll help us to come to you like this young man came to you. Lord, there are many who need to come to you, and they will find what they're missing. They'll find what is absent from their lives. They will find in you the peace and the joy, the, the eternal life that you have to give. And I pray, God, today that you'll speak to our hearts as we turn our attention to your word. In your name we pray, amen. It's been a number of years ago now, but there was a man who was a friend of mine, still is for that matter, and I had been witnessing to him. I had been sharing the gospel with him. I had been telling him about how he can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Sometimes I did that in part. Sometimes I did that as a full presentation. But on a number of occasions, I have participated over those years. I had participated in sharing the gospel of Jesus with this man. Some of those times I would come to the conclusion and I would say something to the effect, are you ready now to receive Christ? And his answer, the one answer that I heard repeatedly when I asked that question was, not right now. Not right now. It always discouraged me when I heard that answer, but I also knew that I couldn't give up, and so I kept coming back and bringing the gospel to him. As time continued, our paths began to diverge. He went in one direction, and I went in another direction, and I didn't see him very often over the next few years. One day, I got a phone call, and it was a member of his family who had called me and said, he's in very critical condition in the hospital. Would you please go and visit him? Of course, I was glad to be able to do that. I found him in the intensive care unit of the hospital. He was unresponsive. He wasn't able to respond to me in any interaction that I would have had with him. But I had always been told that the last thing that you lose 
when you're dying is your hearing. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I've just been told that. So I figured even if he can't respond to me, maybe he'll hear what I have to say to him. And for a few minutes, I stood there at his bedside. Nobody else was in the room but me and him. And I talked to him about some of the past times when we'd had conversations, some of the things that we had talked about in the past. And then I repeated the gospel story, that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again, and that Jesus saves all who will come to him. And you might not be able to say to me, yes, I want to receive Christ, but Jesus can see and hear your prayers, and he can see your heart. And if you'll turn your heart to him right now, Jesus will save you. When I finished, obviously, there was no response. I had a moment of prayer with him there in the intensive care unit, and then I left. It wasn't but a few days later that I got a phone call again from the same family member, and they said, this is amazing. He's better. He's turned the corner. He's sitting up. He's talking. It was unbelievable. But the best news came just after that. This particular lady said, you won't believe what happened. Two of his friends who've been his friends for years and years came to his room after he turned the corner and they led him to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was filled with thanksgiving and rejoicing. That's what we had wanted to see for a long, long time. I wasn't the only one who wanted to see that. There were others who wanted to see that as well. And finally, he had come to faith in Jesus as he continued to improve. He was able to be dismissed from the hospital, and he would go home. He would spend several weeks recovering and finally get uh, most of his strength back, and ultimately he professed his faith in baptism and pro professed his faith uh, to, to others, declaring that he was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I couldn't be happier or more pleased. One of the things that you should know about this man is he was a good man, good in a relative sense as you compare him to others. The way we use the word good, he was a good man. Uh, he was somebody who was honorable. He was honest. Uh, he was hardworking. Uh, you know that old phrase, uh, he'd give the shirt off his back. That was the kind of guy he was. He was a good man in that sense of the word. But that good man, all of us who had talked to him about the gospel, that good man, all of us knew that there was one thing he was lacking. There was one thing that was missing from his life. You know, that may be you today. Those of you that are watching, that may be you today. You may have the world by the tail, so to speak. You may have life, and it's turning up roses everywhere you look. You may seemingly have everything in life that's all good and all well, but there's one thing you lack. And it's the thing that that man lacked, and it's the thing that this young man in this story that we have read today lacked as well. Jesus introduces us to a young man. Actually, Mark does in the life of Jesus, introduces us to a young man. We know a number of things, at least seven things about him. He is young. We don't know exactly what his age is. He wouldn't have been a teenager. He might have been in his 20s. He might have been in his 30s, but he was a young man. And we were reminded in the last message that when we're young, we should be giving our best. He was interested in eternal things, and we should be interested in eternal things. We know that he was rich. Nothing wrong necessarily with riches. It's okay to have riches as long as riches don't have you. This man was rich. He was a ruler. 
maybe a civic leader, but more likely just a religious leader, which would have been in some cases a civic leader as well. But in that Jewish community, he was looked at as a leader amongst the people. He was enthusiastic. He comes running to Jesus. He's got all of this excitement. He wants to get Jesus before Jesus leaves and goes to Jerusalem. He wants to spend these moments with Jesus, and he's enthusiastic. He's respectful. When he comes to Jesus, he kneels before him, and he says to him, good teacher, good teacher. Uh, He was morally upright. When Jesus talks about the commandments, he lists five of the Decalogue, five of the Ten Commandments. And the young man says, I've kept those things from my youth up. Probably from his bar mitzvah forward, he had kept those things. At least outwardly, he felt that he obeyed those things. He was a morally upright kind of an individual. And I would say that he was as well sincere. When Jesus says that he loved him, looking at him, it says Jesus loved him. Jesus never loved hypocrisy. On a number of occasions, you can find in the Gospels where Jesus confronted and spoke very directly about the matter of hypocrisy, and yet he didn't see that hypocrisy in this young man, and when he looked at him, he loved him because he knew that he was answering the questions as sincerely as possible. And yet, in spite of all of these things, all of these incredible things that were true about this young man, Jesus said about him in verse 21, One thing you lack. Do you know what that one thing is? Do you know what that one thing is that many people today lack and so desperately need to have? Well, if you don't, I hope you'll find out before we finish this message today. In the previous message, we talked about one of the three things that are commendable about this young man. That first one was he is concerned or was concerned about the right thing in life. He came to Jesus asking Jesus about eternal life. He was interested in the eternal things of life. We commend everyone who recognizes that this is not all there is, that this is only temporary, that there is eternal life. There is eternity beyond this, an eternal life after this, and we spend it either in heaven or in hell. And if we live only for what this life can give us, we will be wasting our energies and our efforts. We ought to be investing a part of our lives in that which is eternal. And that's to be commended about this young man. So many young people don't understand the significance or the importance of the eternal, and they put it off. They think till some better day. But what did we learn from Solomon? We learn from Solomon that it's in our youth that we begin to keep our, keep, keep our obedience to God and keep our devotion to God in our youth. Because as we get older, there are fewer things that we can do. So we give our very best years to the Lord. We don't wait to give those years later on. Somebody has said, don't burn the candle of your life for the devil and then blow the smoke of a wasted life in the face of Jesus. And this young man wasn't that kind of a young man. He came and he was interested in the eternal. But today I want you to look at a second thing that's commendable about this young man. Not only was he concerned about the right thing in life, but he approached the right person for the answer. It says that he came running up to Jesus. He came to the one who has the answer. Did you know that everybody needs to come to Jesus? Did you know that? 
Everybody needs to come to Jesus. There's just one problem. As he comes to Jesus, he addresses Jesus with the phrase, good teacher, good rabbi. And Jesus quickly takes that one word good and turns it around to confront this man with something that's a reality about his life. Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that's God. In essence, what he was saying to this young man is, you have called me something that you don't believe me to be. You don't believe me to be God. Now, the evidence of that is further down into this text. The next time this young man addresses Jesus, in verse 20, he calls him teacher, but he doesn't call him good teacher. He had heard the instruction of Jesus, and this young man didn't believe Jesus was God. He believed he was a rabbi, but he didn't, a respectable rabbi, but he didn't believe that he was God. So the next time he addresses him, he doesn't address him as good teacher. He just says, teacher. And a little bit later, when Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, if this man believed that Jesus was God, he would have done what Jesus told him to do. The problem here is that this young man didn't believe that Jesus was God. You know, we use the word good in a general sense, a, a relative term. We're comparing ourselves among ourselves, which the scripture says is not a wise thing to do. But in the first century, you use the word good in a very specific sense. It's helpful to recall that in Judaism, only God is characteristically called good. Rabbis would welcome any number of titles, but rarely would a rabbi be addressed as a good teacher. And the reason was because they feared blasphemy against God, who alone is good. In other words, when he says to Jesus, good teacher, he should have been saying to Jesus, I believe you are God, but that wasn't what he was saying. He knew the works that Jesus did. He had probably heard some of the things that Jesus had taught but he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Savior, and the result was that he addressed him improperly. And Jesus takes that and he turns it around and says, why do you call me good? If you don't believe that I'm God, then you shouldn't be saying that I'm good. But the fact of the matter is only God is good, and only God should be called good. This man respected Jesus, but he didn't see him as God. If Jesus is good, then Jesus is God, right? If Jesus is good, then Jesus is God. By the way, when Jesus says this back to the man, he's implicitly, not explicitly, but he's implicitly affirming his own sinlessness and his own deity. But in the process of acknowledging who he really is and helping the man to see that he doesn't fully believe that, He's also saying to this man that if only God is good, then you're not good, and you can never be good enough, right? I mean, if only God is good and we can never be good enough to live with God on the basis of what we do, then we have to stop and acknowledge that we're sinful. And this man was having a difficulty acknowledging the reality of his own sinfulness, of his own failures. Yes, outwardly he was obedient to the law, but it's not just the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law. And there is nobody who keeps the law perfectly, right? 
if we kept the law perfectly, if they kept the law perfectly, they wouldn't have needed the sacrificial system. They wouldn't have needed to come back year after year, year after year, over centuries, over millennia. They wouldn't have had to come back bringing the sacrifices. But they knew they weren't good. They knew they weren't good enough. And yet Jesus takes what this man says, good teacher, and he turns it around and says, first of all, you don't believe I am who I say I am. You don't believe that I am God. You're not using good in the sense that you believe that I am God. But if you stop and think about it, only God is good. And if only God is good, there is nothing you can do that will make you good enough in order to enter heaven, in order to have eternal life on the basis of the things you do. In other words, the sacrificial system was necessary. His sacrifice on the cross of Calvary was necessary. The great struggle that so many people have today is they can't acknowledge that they're sinners. And until you can acknowledge that you're a sinner and only God is good, until you can acknowledge that you're a sinner, you will never come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none righteous. It didn't matter if this man obeyed all these commandments. By the way, the fact that he's asking this question, how do you inherit eternal life, indicates an insecurity in this man that he doesn't yet have eternal life. There's an insecurity in the question itself. How do I have eternal life? He's worried about it. Maybe I don't have it. What if I don't have it? He's concerned about it. Something's missing because deep down in his own soul, he knows he can never be good enough or there would be no need for the sacrificial system. He knows he can't do enough. He knows he can't be good enough, that only God is good. There's none good, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isn't that true? How is it that you came to know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? It started with you understanding that you were a sinner. When you recognize that God is good and only God is good and there is nothing you can do to make yourself good enough to get to God, to have eternal life, you turn to the only one who could give you what you so desperately need, the one thing that you so desperately needed, and that is grace. His unmerited, undeserved favor. And that's what Jesus is trying to bring this young man. He's trying to get him to the place of acknowledging and recognizing that I am who I say I am. And if you would put your faith in me and stop trying to be good enough, the result would be that you would become a possessor of eternal life. But that's not just true for this young man. That's true for every man, woman, boy, or girl. We all have to come to a place in our lives when we acknowledge that we are what God says we are. We are sinners. And the fact of the matter is we need the Savior. Do you need the Savior? You think you're going to get into heaven because you come to church or because you do good things or because you've been baptized or because you know the preacher or because you, know, you give your money? You think you're going to get into heaven on the basis of the commands that you obey? You will never be good enough on those terms. It is only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 64 says, Even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. 
You know why? Because so often they're done for ourselves. They're done out of our own selfish interest. They're done not with the selflessness that Jesus offered himself on the cross of Calvary. They're done with that self-centeredness. Even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It's a message that's not heard as much in the church today as it needs to be heard or in the world in which we live, that we are sinners. And part of coming to, come, coming to the grace of God, to experience the grace of God, is first recognizing what we are. We are not good enough. No matter what command we may have that we think if we could just add one more to it or two more to it, the fact of the matter is we could never be good enough because God alone is good. Jesus was coming and trying to help this young man. He came to the right person. He came to the right person for the answer. I'm not so sure he liked the answer he heard. As a matter of fact, I know he didn't like the answer that he heard. But he came to the right person because only Jesus can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, what this young man could not do for himself. Where was it in your life? Where was it in your life? that you acknowledge that you were a sinner in need of the Savior. Please understand, Jesus is not like a piece of jewelry. What do you call those things that ladies wear sometimes that have... Uh, uh, not a piece of jewelry that you add to a whole bunch of other pieces of jewelry on a bracelet, charm bracelet. Je Jesus is not another charm to put on a charm bracelet. Jesus is the one that you completely abandon everything else in order to embrace Jesus and Jesus alone. He's not just a lucky rabbit's foot in your pocket that you carry around with you thinking that maybe he'll bring you good luck. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And by the way, you don't have to know everything there is to know about Jesus you don't have to know all of Christology, everything that the Bible teaches is about Jesus, but you've got to know enough about Jesus. It's the reason we send missionaries. It's the reason why we have to take the message of the gospel to our community. It's the reason why we broadcast the message, to get it out to as many people as possible. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is God in the flesh. Nobody else was born like Jesus was born. He was born of the Virgin Mary miraculously conceived in the womb of Mary so that he would have a human body, but he wouldn't have the human sin nature. Nobody else has ever lived like Jesus. Jesus lived in complete obedience to the law. What this young man could not do, Jesus was able to do. In the letter of the law and in the spirit of the law, Jesus crossed every T and dotted every I because Jesus alone is the sinless one. Nobody's ever died like Jesus. Oh, there were thousands of Roman crucifixions. But nobody else hanging on the cross was able to take the penalty of our sins on himself. Everybody else was dying for their own sins. But Jesus took our penalty on himself, and Jesus suffered what we rightfully should have suffered. Nobody else has ever been buried like Jesus was buried. Because everybody else that was buried is left in a tomb, and they're left there until this day. But Jesus, on that Easter Sunday morning, caught up out of that grave, arose from the dead, victorious over sin and grave, 
over, the, over sin in the grave. Jesus rose again by the power of God. He rose up from the grave, and nobody ever ascended to heaven like Jesus. The disciples watched him as he ascended up into the clouds, and they said, this same Jesus that you've ascended, he's going to come again. There is no one else like Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Saved from what? A wasted life? Well, yes. That's part of it. Saved from what? Saved from our sins. Saved from the penalty of our sins. And you can never be good enough on your own. You simply need Jesus. You needed exactly what this man needed. One thing you lacked. The same thing my friend lacked. He needed Jesus. He needed to believe on Jesus. He needed the grace of Jesus. The same thing this young man desperately needed wasn't another commandment to obey because he could never be good enough because only God is good. He needed to see who Jesus truly was and to put his faith in Jesus who alone could help him. We commend him that he was concerned about the right thing in life. We commend him that he approached the right person for the answer because the one who can answer that question, the only one who can answer that question is Jesus Christ. But then we commend him thirdly because he received the right answer to this question. Now, you might not like his answer, what Jesus says to him, but notice verse 21 again. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. May I stop here for just a moment, and may I tell you that nobody goes to hell without being loved by God. You go to hell against the love of God. Here's a young man who thought he could do something to make himself good enough to gain entrance into the presence of God, who alone is good. And Jesus turns it around and says, first of all, you don't believe I am who I say I am. And second of all, no command that you obey can ever make you good enough to get to the one place where you want to be with the, with the God of heaven who alone is good. He says, there's one thing you lack. He says, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. I want you to think about that for a moment. He received the right answer. Don't you love Jesus? Jesus always knows. He's the great physician. He always knows where to put his finger. He always knows exactly where the problem is. I asked that man on a number of occasions, not a number, but on, on occasion, I asked him, I said, why wouldn't you accept Jesus? I'm just, just not now. I'm not ready now. Not ready now. You remember the woman at the well? Jesus put his finger on exactly the problem. What did he say? Go call your husband. It's not always money. It's something else in people's lives. It's something else in your life. The one thing you're missing is because of something else in your life. It may not be the exact same thing that this young man has, but there's that thing, and Jesus is putting his finger on it, and Jesus puts this, his finger on this man's problem. You know what his problem is? He can't trust Jesus because his faith is in his, is in his money. His faith is in his money. You, you don't believe that? Look at verse 23 again. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches 
to enter the kingdom of God. What did he mean by have riches? Verse 24, and the disciples were astonished at his words. You know why they were astonished? Because it was the general belief of the first century that if you had money, it meant you were blessed by God, so you must be okay with God. And so they look at themselves and they say, wait a minute, he's got all this money. Surely that means he's been blessed by God, and God's going to let him into heaven on the basis of those blessings. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those, hear the words, who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus goes on to give an analogy. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. A camel through the eye of a needle? Wouldn't you have chuckled when you heard that? Somebody said, well, that was a small gate in the Jerusalem wall. Listen, there is no such gate. There was no such gate at this particular time where a camel could get down on his knees and crawl through a small gate. That's possible. It's difficult, but it's, 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 it's possible, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the salvation of someone's soul is humanly impossible. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Maybe that needle wasn't as small as the needles that some of you men and women have in your houses where you try to put the thread through the opening in the needle. Or maybe it was. The point was you couldn't do this. It's humanly impossible. Verse 26, and they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said... With men, it's impossible, but with God, but not with God, for with God, all things are possible. Have you found that to be true? I don't care what it is about your life. I don't know what the one thing is. Maybe it's not something good. Maybe it's something really bad. And the one thing that Jesus puts his finger on that keeps you from coming to Christ, acknowledging that you're a sinner and that he is the Savior, that he is the one you need, putting your faith in him as your only hope, he puts his finger on that one thing. And what we cannot accomplish, what this young man could not accomplish, Jesus says God can accomplish. Amen? You know why you're saved today? Because I was really good enough, and God just sort of said, okay, you're close enough. You're saved today because what was impossible for you to ever accomplish, God accomplished through the death and the resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand that by challenging this man to sell all that he had and give to the poor, he was challenging the focus of this man's faith. He was challenging the focus. He trusted in riches. He didn't trust in Christ. First of all, he didn't believe Christ was who he claimed to be. But then he didn't trust in Christ. He wanted something more that he could do, thinking that he could get good enough, be good enough. But you can never be good enough because only God is good. And so Jesus points out the one thing where his trust has been placed. His trust has been placed in his possessions. The one thing that he lacked was faith alone in Christ alone. And to leave everything behind, as Jesus is telling him to do, was in essence telling him, you're going to have to put your faith in me and in nothing else. And can I tell you today that if you're going to be saved, you've got to come and put your faith in Jesus and in nothing else and no one else. 
The Baptist church can't get you to heaven. The Methodist church, the Presbyterian church, the Catholic church, whatever church, can't get you to heaven. The only one who can take you to heaven is Jesus. The only one who can give you eternal life is Jesus. The only one who can forgive your sins is Jesus. The only one who can make you a child of God is Jesus. The only one who can give you a meaning and purpose in this life is Jesus. And you've got to come and you've got to put your faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. As a matter of fact, I wrote it this way. In essence, Jesus offered himself as a substitute for the man's possessions. Just think, if he had only let go of those things that he was trusting and he had embraced Christ and Christ alone, he would have gained what? Everything. But instead, if he continues in this condition and doesn't turn to Jesus Christ, he will lose everything as a result. You understand what I'm saying? One thing you lack. You know the one thing you lack is faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior, your Savior. That's the one thing. Believing that Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose again, that's the one thing. When he says one thing you lack, that's sort of like saying to, about a digital watch that one thing you lack, a battery. Or it's like saying about a car, you know, one thing you lack, a motor. Or it's like saying about the human body, one thing you lack, a heart. The one thing people lack is a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith and through faith alone. Do you have that relationship? Do you have that kind of a relationship? Someone asked John Wesley how he found salvation apart from the Anglican church. As you know, John Wesley was the founder of, of, of Methodism, uh, the founder of the Methodist church. And he said it was on a ship one time during a terrible storm and some Moravian missionaries on board were not afraid. He said, I was afraid. And they looked at me and said, Mr. Wesley, why are you afraid? And I said, why are you not afraid? And they said, we know Christ. Mr. Wesley, do you know Christ? He continues, when they looked at me and said that I could, when they looked at me and said, said that I could only say, I know the church, I know the creeds, but I don't know Christ. I guess the question I want to leave you with today is, do you know Christ? You have an interest in eternal things. You want to know what's going to happen to you after this life. You want to have the assurance of meaning and purpose in this life. The question is, do you know Christ? The greatest need in 21st century modern Christianity. Are you ready? It's simply Jesus. That's the greatest need in modern 21st century Christianity.